0: Amen, you can grab a seat. Glad you're with us this morning. today we are going to be talking about death. yeah, that's what everybody was hoping we were going to talk about, and it's happening. We're talking about uh, death here at Hope Church. No, I mean, I know nobody really is excited to talk about that this morning, but i i I do know that if you're going to do a series on anxiety, you got to talk about the things that people are anxious about um, and so if you just keep it really superficial. Sure, but I don't know that you're really helping anybody. I don't know how often you think about it. For some people, it becomes a real hang-up. But there's nothing that, if you really dig into it, is is too much scarier than the reality that, that death exists. When I thought about having to talk to you about it, I thought about seeing the Barbie movie. I don't know if you guys saw it. I love my wife. She wanted to go on a date night, and of course, we were going to go, so we went to a movie, and it's like, well, should we see, you know, and there's all my answers in my head, but of course, I'm saying, like, well, what do you want to see? You know, she's like, well, I heard the Barbie movie's funny, and I'm like, okay, let's do it, you know, so we went and saw it. Lo and behold, a lot of stuff in there that was very interesting, a lot we could talk about, but One of the big scenes early on in the movie, they're in Barbie land, and the relationship between Barbie land and regular land, I kind of missed, I went to the restroom early, but in Barbie land are all the Barbies, and the Barbies are living just sort of a perfect life with each other in Barbie land. And there's early in the movie a party at the Barbie house, the Barbie Malibu house, where all the Barbies are dancing together to this really up disco type track. And it's really fun and it's really exciting and everybody's really happy because they're Barbie and they're perfect, right? And they're speaking to each other. All the Barbies are singing and they're dancing with each other and better dancing than I do. And they say, uh, one Barbie says, they're all named Barbie because... I guess they're all Barbies. But one Barbie says to the other Barbie, this is a real rager Barbie. And then the other Barbie goes, thanks, Barbie. Gosh, this night is just perfect. And then another Barbie says, it's perfectly perfect. And then another Barbie says, and you look so beautiful, Barbie. And then she says, thanks, I feel so beautiful. And then another one says, and so do I. And then another one says, this is the best day ever. And then Margot Robbie, who's the stereotypical Barbie, she said some of these lines so far, but she says, it is the best day ever, and so is yesterday, and so is tomorrow, and so is the day after tomorrow, and even Wednesdays, and every day from now until forever. And they're all like, Yeah. And they're all dancing through this with big hair and like big outfits. And then she says, Do you guys ever think about dying? And as soon as she says it, the music stops, and their smiles kind of like fade. And Mara Robbie realizes that she's made some sort of mistake by bringing up the topic. And she goes, no, I'm sorry. What I meant to say is, um, I am dying to keep dancing. And they all go, yeah! And then the music starts again, and it's just, let's forget it ever happened. It keeps going. I don't know about you, but I kind of think we fit into two sort of camps this morning. We fit into the camp of people who are thinking about death, like, constantly, (laughs) constantly. And then we fit into the camp of people, and I think this is a lot of people in our valley, who would like to keep things perfect and not talk about some of the stuff that sort of undercuts that idea of of perfectly perfect. That that we're living in a world and we're making it great, and I'm great, and you're great, and yesterday's great, and today's great, and tomorrow's going to be great. And, And like, let's just make it great. Well, okay. But if you want to think that way, you've got to think around certain things. And if we were going to talk about anxiety and not talk about, that, I think, something that fits at the heart of what scares us, man, we just really wouldn't be doing much of a service to each other or to the Bible. Because if you actually read the Bible, the Bible talks about fear a lot, as we've said. But the Bible talks about fear of death a lot, It talks about fear of how we might die. Because you just say fear of death, and that means a lot of different things. For some of you, it could be fear about how you might die. I don't want to talk about that too much, because I know some of you might sort of get tuned out for the rest of the sermon and get back into some of those thoughts. There's some scary stuff there. Sometimes fear of death gets communicated in like a fear of what's going to happen to people that you love if you die. Like all these dependents that you care about, some of the stuff you're hoping for, like the world that you're hoping to like impact or do, and like when you die, like how how does that continue to happen? Why why would things continue to move in that direction? Things is also a real fear of the unknown. Like it's hard to get reports back from what happens when people die. We don't really know, do we? Like I know there's a lot of things that are said. And a lot of people have their ideas. And Christianity, actually, is a reasoned religion. Like, I'm going to talk about a little bit. We have reasons for why we think what we think is true is true. And it's not just something that's just out there and it's faith. It's something that is logically defensible that we build our faith on. But for most people that just sort of think of religion in the world of of hopefulness, I think superstition maybe is a negative way to say it, but like hopefulness without a lot of grounding to it, then the stuff that you read from these different faith backgrounds that talk about what death is and what happens after you die, I mean, it can sound a little wishful thinking-ish. But what I want to do is is show you what the Bible says about it and try to help you understand why we don't consider it to be wishful thinking, but instead something that can ground you In the face of death, something that can allow you to see death as a reality, to live as though it is a reality, step out of Barbie land and live as though it is a reality without being just totally um, overcome by that fear. So first, what does the Bible say that sin is? The Bible talks about death, and it talks about death early, but what does it say that sin is? Now, at Hope Church, everything that we do comes from the Bible. I don't have any authority, even as a pastor of Hope Church. We are just a church that talks about what the Bible says because we consider the Bible to be God's Word. And so most weeks, when you come here, we will have one central text that we're working from, and I'll ask you to turn to that text. Well, today, because we're talking about something that's talked about and like a lot of the Bible, I'm going to be jumping around quite a bit. So, if you want to, you can open up your Bible and turn or tap your way. We're going to start in Romans 5, and you're welcome to do that. But we'll also have those verses on the screen for you, and we would love for you to just keep up with this verses that way and maybe write down some of the references and check them later and see is that what that verse means, and then, you know, call me up if you think something different. But in Romans 5, the Apostle Paul talks about death... As a result of sin, now sin is is a breaking of God's law. and the Bible is saying, according to to the words that we're going to read here, that what death is is a result of sin or, or what is now the, the sinful nature, what we're all kind of prone to. In Romans chapter five verse twelve says, "Therefore, just as sin came into the world." through one man and death through sin so death spread to all men because all sinned okay he's making a really clear connection between sin and death and he's talking about through one man and you're thinking who who is he talking about well the bible talks about god in creation starting with just one man and one woman adam and eve and if you go to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis, the first book of the Bible, at the beginning of Genesis, in Genesis chapter 2, God gives one law to the man and the woman. He creates the world. He looks at it and says, it is good. It's not the world that we live in now. It's the same, but before it was broken. God made it. He made the earth and the stars and everything in them. And he looked at them and said, it is good. And then he put Adam and Eve, the man and the woman, the image bearers into a garden that he planted called the garden of Eden. And he said, Oh, it is so good. But he told the people in Genesis chapter two and verse 16, the Lord God commanded the man saying, you can eat of any tree in the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What he's saying is that if you break this law, I'm telling you not to do it. This is not a good thing if you do it. But if you do do it, here is the punishment. The punishment is that you're surely going to die. Now, that sounds harsh. He's got one rule, and that one rule has a huge consequence. But it actually makes some sense. See, when they broke that rule, they invited into the world death, the brokenness of the world that we see around us. They made possible St. Jude's. Do you ever mess with St. Jude's, the children's hospital in Tennessee? Rachel and I give to St. Jude's so that we don't have to watch the commercials because when they show the commercials, you're so bummed out. And it's like, oh, my gosh, I'm not emotionally mature enough to handle this. Let's skip the ad and we'll give some money. (laughs) Maybe that'll make us feel better about it. It's awful. It's a reality. It's a result of what they did. An ocean of tears results. Now in Salt Lake City, not only do we have our beautiful parks, every now and again you'll drive by, very pretty landscaping, and it's a cemetery. That is a result of what they did. Why? We were like a branch that was connected to the tree, to the Father. The Bible talks about us that way in the New Testament. It talks about him as a vine and we're the branches. It's an analogy. You don't have to go too far with it. But a way of understanding it that's legitimate is that we're connected to the Father. We get our life from the Father. In him, we live and move and have our being. And when we sinned against him, what we did was very intentionally pull our hand out of his That's what the enemy tempted us with. You can be like God, knowing good from evil. And we said, well, I want to be not necessarily with God, but as God, like God, pulling our hand from his in order to stand on our own. But if you cut a branch from a tree, and I don't know about all botany, but for the trees in my house, those limbs don't become new trees. Those limbs dry up. They get really crackly. And I have to go pick them up or mow them down. They're not good for anything. When God said, don't do this, and we did it anyway. We pulled ourselves away from him. And, and that pulling away had this very natural consequence of, of dying. Branches don't live apart from the tree. So, so death is a judgment. A judgment that we did what he commanded us not to do. And I think that's one of the big fears of death that we feel, the idea that we're going to have to stand before a judgment and that the burning light of the holy, holy, holy God is going to condemn us. Like on Sunday mornings, I'll get up a little bit early. You know, it's dark in the bedroom, but I've got to turn on the lights. Sorry, babe, i got to turn on the lights because I have got to have at least one moment on a Sunday before I come here where I just make sure that nothing crazy happened over the night. You know, I'm not in puberty anymore, but I still have like things that'll happen at nighttime. You get these pimples or whatever. So before I stand before you, and you're great, but you're just you. Before I stand before you, I check myself. I would be mortified if I had a big stain coming down my shirt. I got to be careful what donuts I eat. If I eat with the wrong one and then just the jelly, you know, if it come down my shirt, I'd have to try and get another shirt. I wouldn't want to stand before you with a stain on me. Do you understand how some people would fear death because they don't want to stand before a holy God and have him judge their life? We're pretty stained up. So if that's what God said that sin and death are, what does he do about them? Like if that's what death is and he has commanded us not to fear, that must mean that there's some other piece of this equation, something else that he's done. And that's what I want to talk about. It happens on almost every page of Scripture. It's way bigger than we've got, you know, 20 minutes to talk about. But there's a couple of things I want to highlight that I think, if they're not the main thing, are pretty close. And they can give us the comfort, the the grace that we need. As we think about anxiety, especially about fear of, of death, what does God do about death? Well, he walks with us through it. He defeats it. He changes it. And he also gives us hope about what's on the other side for us to think about now. First, he, he walked through it. He walks with us through it. And Matthew 28 is a really famous couple of verses. It's right at the very end of the first gospel. So it's the first book in the New Testament that was a story about Jesus' life, ministry, death, resurrection, and ascension. And at the very end between resurrection and ascension, he gives what's called the Great Commission or his last great command to his disciples. And he says... All authority in in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. What is he saying? He's telling us to go and do something. There is a command there. We are commissioned to go about a business not a business, but to go about work, the work of bringing people to know who this God is, and if they respond, to teach those people about what he has said to baptize them in his name. And yet, don't don't miss the comfort that goes with the command. He also says, I am with you always to the end of the age. What he says is, no matter what you're about to experience, now, if you read through the Gospel of Matthew, you'll see that he gives them specific comfort for when they go and tell people about who he is, because he knows that when they tell people about who he is, sometimes those people are going to react violently, and he tells them not to fear people that can just kill the body, but to fear God who can cure the body and the soul. We talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Doesn't sound like very encouraging words, but it is. It actually is really, really encouraging. That. That passage and that teaching does seem to connect to this one, where he's also commanding them to go and make disciples, knowing that there's going to be negative responses regularly. If they, if they do this to the master, what will they do to the servant, right? So in this world, they're going to have troubles. And yet, what does he say? That he is with them in those troubles. Now, that's nice. That's a cool thing to say. But isn't that the scary part of death? Like when you do die, you do die alone. Don't you? This is what I think is so intense about Christianity. We don't serve an example. When we serve God, we don't just serve somebody who is holy, though he is. We serve a holy one who has also died. If death is a corruption, if death is a punishment, if death is a defeat. Do you understand what he means when he says that he has also died, that he's with us in death, that he's he's also died? That the holy one out of love took that level of sin, that level of corruption that he never did, and he put the punishment for it on himself so that us that have had that punishment can take his reward. We give him our judgment. We take his reward for his perfect righteousness. And when that judgment day comes, you don't stand before God and he goes, wow, staying free. You stand before God and he goes, wow, covered in the righteousness of Christ. Come on in. Well done, good and faithful servant. We stand before him, (laughs) we stand before him with Jesus, and he's with us the whole way, even to the end of the age. Why wouldn't he be? You think death's going to stop him. He's already died. There's no barrier for him. Now, this book, Untangling Emotions, I'm quoting from it constantly, not because it's the only book I've ever read, but because I think this book is so good that I want to keep quoting from it in the hope that you will go and buy it and actually read it. But the authors say, nothing so powerfully quenches the the fire of fear as the presence of someone we trust. Our little dog is named Chip. And our little dog barks way louder than you would expect a little dog like Chip to bark. And he doesn't bark a lot, but he barks every single time somebody gets anywhere near our front door. And you wouldn't think it's that big of a deal, but I was at somebody else's house and somebody knocked and I felt myself tense up. Pavlovian. I felt somebody knocked at the other door. Dog's not around. And I tensed up. Why did I tense up? Because I was ready for him to start barking and me to freak out. Because when everything's really calm and quiet at the house and then somebody wants to sell you solar panels, our dog is going to freak out while you're in the middle of some deep, wonderful, intense, confusing, whatever. And all of a sudden, he freaks out. And I'm usually up a floor, so I don't hear it too much, but I still tense up. But the funny part for me is that Rachel's right next to it. So (laughs) you hear a dog, and then you hear Rachel go, Chip. almost without fail. She's in the room. She can confirm. Now, you can train a dog not to do that. We haven't, but you can train a dog not to do that. And the way that you train a dog not to do that is that you get the dog to, when something knocks on the door or comes up onto the front porch, you get the dog to look at you and to try and read whether or not you're concerned about the situation. It's possible. Dogs are intuitive that way. It's possible that you could get the dog to look at you and if you start reaching for a gun, then it's okay. Bark away. But if you decide that the the Amazon delivery person is not a threat to like your existence and like the fact of your house and gonna get your kids or something, but somebody that you asked to come and bring you a thing that you've paid for, and it's okay that there's a delivery person on your front porch, then that the dog would just go back to sleep. What's the difference? The difference is when the dog, if he can just learn to look at the person who knows what's happening, who can actually assess the threat level. Well, he would bark a lot less, which would be great for us, but he would also get his little heart, wouldn't have to beat like crazy every time somebody steps up onto our driveway. If you, if you can be with somebody who knows, then, then your comfort goes to a whole different level. I don't know if you ever do that. I mean, it's the difference between if you just go read a book or read a blog about a topic and actually go and talk to somebody who knows you. I find that I get a lot more comfort out of talking to a person than I do out of reading a book. Even if the book is written by somebody who knows a lot more about it than the person that I'm talking to, if I can talk to a person that I know, man, the comfort is through the roof. And what Jesus is saying, the risen Jesus is saying in these verses, and what he's promising is that he is with you to the very end of the age. He's going to walk with you through this death. But he's going to walk with you through a death that's different than the death that even he died. This is the risen Jesus talking about something that he experienced and that he experienced and changed. It says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses three through six, this is one of the early letters that one of the early church leaders wrote to a church that he had planted in a place called Corinth. You can go there today. And in Corinth, he, as he's writing this letter, starts talking about the resurrection. And he talks about it in a very formalized way, in a way that they probably were preaching from place to place, even before this letter, which was written very, very early, would have been written. And this is what he says. He says in verse 3 of 1 Corinthians 15, "I is Paul in this case, For I deliver to you, Corinthians, as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures." that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. In Christianity, we don't just have a great theology. We don't just have a logical progression. We don't just have documents that are as ancient as they claim to be and have the integrity that they should have. What we have that we can bank on as we try and believe this stuff or not, decide if this story about how we get through death is wishful thinking or something true, what we have is a historical event. Not just the execution of the man Jesus on a cross, but that his followers unanimously proclaim that he then got up from the grave that he walked around, that he did what he called out, that he said he would do by getting back up from the grave, and that he appeared to groups. He appeared to the 12 who knew him closely, 11 at this point, who knew him closely. He appeared to people who you could consider expert witnesses on whether or not that person was Jesus or a Jesus type. I mean, we've all seen that. You see different actors playing the same role, and you realize, eh, there's some similarities there, but they're not the same. There's some things people might have thought, but these guys knew. You have the highest quality of witness, but you also have a great quantity of witnesses. Because not only does he appear to the 12, 11, he appears now before groups, even a group of 500 people. He was establishing the resurrection, not as something that we hope, not as something that we kind of think is true and really don't worry too much about it. Let's instead just talk about the poetic meaning of it. He talks about it first as a fact, and then he backs it up by saying, and you can go talk to some of these people. Been a minute. Not all of them are very wise. It's the first century. No, all 500 are not still alive, but 100 or more, several, many, many, are still alive. You can go and talk to him if you want to. There was a foundational event that he quantified and qualified with these witnesses saying it did actually happen. And because it actually happened, we can believe in the meaning of that event. So once he establishes the fact, he does move on to the interpretation. If you get down to the bottom of 1 Corinthians 15, and verses 54 to 56, the apostle Paul says, When the perishable puts on the imperishable, he's not talking about our resurrection, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. I don't know if you're following that too well. But what he's saying is that because Christ died and actually died, like experienced God's punishment, God's wrath, which is what death was supposed to be, is the the full cutting off of a thing from its creator. Now Jesus is creator as well. He's God. That's part of why he can do this. But there's a reason that he says, "My God, my God, why have you forsaken me?" from the cross. It's because in that moment he is experiencing what death means. And yet because he experienced it as an innocent, as one who truly had never sinned, he stands up. Having received that punishment, he then breaks death and he walks by it as a dead thing. Your second comfort is not only that he'll be with you in death, but that he has fundamentally changed death. Let's be honest about it. We've had Christians for 2000 years and they're great. You can read about them. A lot of them were lovely, some of them were crazy, most of them fantastic. And yet they all still died. I regularly will read quotes from people and be like, "Oh, but he's dead, of course. He's a great writer, and please read him. You can't go talk to him though, you know, he died in England and 200 years ago or whatever." All of these Christians still die, but they die a very different death. Because when Christ died, he, only, he not only died himself, but he also killed death. Now, I don't know if you've ever read this, but I love to think about it. In John chapter 20, we get in another gospel, the story of the resurrection and the people originally realizing that Jesus has been raised from the dead. The first witnesses are these ladies that have gone to go and kind of care for the body and they realize that the tomb is open and the body is gone and they think, oh no, somebody has stolen our Lord. And then Jesus appears to them and they run back to the guys and they go, you're not going to believe it. What he said would happen, happened. And then two of the guys get up and go flying to go and see this tomb. One of them is John, who actually wrote this gospel. And the other is Peter, the guy that we hear about a lot in the gospels. It's kind of this bumbling sort of leader of the disciples. And it says in John chapter 20, verses 6 and 7, then Simon Peter came, following John uh, John the apostle, and he went into the tomb. Peter saw the linen cloths lying there, what they would have buried Jesus in, or, you know, put him in the tomb, laid him in the tomb in. And the face cloth, which had been on Jesus's head. It wasn't lying with the linen cloths, but it was folded up in a place by itself. Now, we're gonna do a little bit of like creative thought on this, but what I love about that is that when Jesus gets out of the grave, he doesn't like crawl out of the grave in the same way that I like crawl through the end of a hike or a run. I tell my wife I'm going on a run. It's like, oh gosh, you know, because she knows when I get back, everybody's got to get out of the way. Dad just barely made it. It was only two miles. It took a long time. But it's just awful. The task almost overcame him, but slightly he was able to do it. When we read about this level, the the resurrection told in this way, we see a Jesus who gets up from the grave and then casually folds his face cloth before walking out to say hello to these ladies. It wasn't an almost. It wasn't a negotiated peace. He broke death. He defeated it, and he walked by it like a dead thing. If you're his, then you can treat death that way. You can know that though you die, yet you will live, which is why a lot of times in the New Testament, they don't talk about people having died. They talk about people having fallen asleep, That's a little disingenuous. We don't usually bury sleeping people. But he says falling asleep because they're not dead for long. Maybe a couple thousand years, but they're not dead for long. The resurrection's coming. So I want to think about a third thing. That though we now live with this death ahead of us, and it's a death that we're going to experience with him, and it's a death that's been altered by him, it's still a death that's coming. God gives us grace, though, in a third way, to look forward to a blessed hope because he's promised a better place. In John 14, as Jesus is talking to his disciples right before his arrest and trial, before he's killed, he says, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again. I'll take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. One of the apostles, Thomas, says to him, Lord, I don't know where you're going. How are we supposed to know how to get to a place we don't know where it is? And Jesus says to Thomas, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. What he's saying there, this third sort of blessed hope that we have, he's saying that where we're going, we can know something about. We can know that it's going to be good because he's going to prepare it for us. We can know that when we get there, it'll be like walking into your parents' house and there's a room that's been set aside for you. They may have turned your childhood bedroom into a workout place, but they've still pulled out like a -a hide-a-bed because that is a place prepared for you. How much greater, if we think about Jesus, as he has gone to prepare a place for you. We can know a lot about heaven. It talks about it a lot in scripture. But the headline of scripture should be the headline that we experience, which is, I know this will be a better place because it's where I get to be with him forever. One writer and a pastor named John Piper said, This should be the best effect of fear. When you feel fear of death. It can waken us up to our need for help and point us to the all sufficient Redeemer, Jesus. Let it have this effect on you. Let it lead you to Jesus, who says to everyone who believes in him, Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Fear not. Because it's God's good pleasure to give you this beautiful place where He is, and you'll be with Him forever. That's one of the most beautiful parts of one of the psalms, and it's quoted a couple of times in the New Testament, is in Psalm 16:11, where God says uh, I'm sorry, where the writer of the psalm says to God, "You make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy." At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He says, God, you give me life, and that life is pleasure. It's it's goodness. It's a fulfillment, the quality of which path life in your presence is fullness of joy. It's a joy that's complete. And you think maybe you get that complete joy for a minute if you're a good person? No, no, no. For those that are saved in Christ, he gives you that fullness of joy forevermore. The quality is there, but the duration is there as well. If you will begin to dwell on those things, if you'll let your heart start to sit with those things and hold on to them and realize that they're true, you're going to experience a consequent drop in your anxiety around death. You're going to start to realize that, that what this thing is has actually gone from being your punishment and your destruction to your servant. Something that delivers you from here to there. If, of course, you know him. This is what Jesus does for those who trust in him. So we started with the beginning of the Bible thinking about the fall, but look at the end of the Bible where we've seen that redemption take place for everyone who will believe. So for right now, you, whoever you are, look at what the end of the Bible says. The spirit and the bride, they say, come. Let the one who hears say, come. And to the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take the water of life without price. And then he condemns anybody that wants to add to Scripture. And then he says in verse 20, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. (laughs) Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. Listen, when we say anxiety and how do we deal with anxiety, we say we're not going to deny what's true. Something scary is happening. It's denial to pretend it's not scary. But once you say that it is true, it is scary, it is there, then you take a step forward and you say, okay, well, what, what is the thing that I love that's under threat? If you can kind of figure that out, and it's usually pretty easy. If we're talking about death, it's real easy. Then you go a step further and you say, okay, now what is my job here And you may need to get insurance and you may need to eat fewer Twinkies. And there's things that might be your job, but what is God's job here? And then you pray, you spend some time with him, and then you set that down and you start to think about what is true, what is noble, what is right, what is pure, what is lovely, what is excellent, what is worthy of praise. And you start thinking on those things. That can be a lot of different things. It can be your football team. There's probably some nobility there. But what would maybe be better and might might be better to the point for those that are fearful of death is to think about what is to be. You know, this this world is a misstep. Adam and Eve should not have done what they did, but they did. And the Redeemer redeemed. Once the redemption is done, then we get to start. (laughs) Then we get to be with him and with him forever. Oh, let that joy sink in. Let it be that, that palliative. Let it be that, that comfort for those as, as we fear death. Let's pray. Lord God and Heavenly Father, of course we see in Scripture that when you say these things, you say them for those who believe, which is why you have these invitations to come. It's why you have these commands for believers to take these words to all the nations. We give us the grace, Lord, to ask whether or not the reason that we're anxious is because we don't know that we know you. We don't know that you are the God of scripture. Lord, because maybe we think we don't need you. And so we're trusting in ourselves and ourselves is a very uh, shaky thing to trust in. Lord, for a thousand reasons, we might continue to fear death. I, I pray that you would give us the grace to reach out to one another, that we might respond to one another in wisdom from your scripture to see the good grace that you have for those that will put their trust in you that we can sing with the psalmist, that though an army encamps around us, we will not fear. Lord, because you're with us. If, if we walk through the valley of shadow of death, we don't have to fear because your rod and your staff, they comfort us. Lord, I pray that you would draw people to yourself this morning, that you would draw your believers to yourself in trust, but that you would draw others to yourself in faith. Lord, that more and more might believe and believing have life in your name. We love you, sir. We pray these things in your son's holy name. Amen.